Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. It's episode 12. It's the one that a lot of folks say where podcasts hit their stride. Well, I think we've beat that. I think we are. Ooh. We are. Beat it to the punch. Full stride, as they say. <laughs> well, I might ruin it here because I'm uh, changing things up a little bit. Oh, we're talking movies now? No, it's still music and it's still an unlikely hit, but in a different way. Okay. Uh, I'm take, taking a different approach here. I was inspired to choose this song that I hadn't considered before. I'm really curious to see your reaction when okay. I play it. And I'm okay. really excited to talk about it because we've heard a lot about this song over the course of our lives and i'm not sure i've heard this perspective or it's always been like rolled into other things you'll see what i mean wow i believe it's a birthday right now this week right or last week this is a great song because it is an unlikely hit to an extent maybe at the time and you'll probably have all this information but it changed everything and it, and it and it shifted paradigms to an extent that clearly it was unlikely to a certain extent at the time. I think it's unlikely now. I will make the mm. case that this song only could have been popular at the moment it came out. Okay. Oh, interesting. Uh, we'll Different. get into okay. it. We'll get into why. But yes, you mentioned a birthday. Uh, Nevermind came out 30 years ago last Friday, which is so wild to me because uh, I, I still listen to Nirvana a lot. And when I listen to this album, it still sounds so fresh. It sounds so uh, like it still sounds like it's pushing the edge. Um, and I think a lot of the reason for that is that bands tried to do what they were doing after and didn't achieve it. 30th anniversary of the song. That's, that's what inspired me. Uh, it's not a band we need to explain. I'm not going to talk about their origin story. I'm not going to do this band's from Washington and here's how they met. Uh, everyone has a take on Nirvana. They're one of the most famous bands in the history of the planet. And if you aren't as familiar as you'd like to be, I recommend you check out the multiple books, films, countless interviews, think pieces about the band that are out there because they'll tell the story much better than I can. I, I feel like there's now people who teach college courses on this band. So sure. yeah. uh, we don't we don't really need to do that. But I was inspired by the 30th anniversary of Nevermind, the album that introduced the song to the world. And it had me thinking... How is this song so popular, let alone the band? Like, the song is heavy as hell. You can't understand what he's saying. And it's a culmination of sounds that are all rooted in counterculture. It's like hardcore influenced vocals, metal and punk tinged guitars and bass, and then some like funk and soul founded drumming. Like, it's a bizarre song if we really get down to it. Yeah. It smells like Teen Spirit punched everyone in the jaw and everyone was okay with it. Like, they wanted it. Like, kids, teens, College kids, Gen Xers, parents, that's rarely a narrative. It's usually like, this band's great, this song's great, it blew up. Like, that's that's the story. If you play this song for the first time for somebody now, they'd probably turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> like, if they didn't know it at all. Most, pe most people. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like, uh, 
I also think that we've kind of softened up since then. Nobody ever talks about how completely crazy it was that happened. Like we know the story. They were extremely unlikely pop stars. The song itself is an unlikely pop song. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's half screaming up against heavy instrumentation and it became a worldwide pop smash. Like, just think about that. What a setup. Well done. It would never happen today. And it certainly wouldn't have happened before 1991. Great. Yeah. 100% with you. And you know what? I, it is one of the songs. There's a couple that we have on the list that I think are like, would be quote unquote, like controversial because they're huge hits. But if you really think about it and step back, you're like, well, it is a little strange. So I appreciate the opinion. The majority of pop songs, like you hear it or you hear the artist or you have context, you're like, oh yeah, I know it's popular. Or like, this was a big pop song by a big pop artist and they pushed it and it's popular. That's what we wanted to get away from. Like yeah. we wanted to explain all these other songs in between. And this is one of them. And I'm going to start this journey with a quotation from one of my favorite music writers, Ann Powers, uh, who I believe is from Seattle, but now lives in Nashville. Uh, She's a music critic at NPR, and I think she truly puts into perspective why this song fits the mold of what we do. Ann says, Smells Like Teen Spirit is an unusual anthem because it refuses the role of the anthem. It's perfect for the generation it represented because it was a cohort that was so ambivalent about any traditional values or conventional success. It's like, no matter how hard they tried, the song still became a hit. (laughs) (laughs) Which is all good punk. Yeah, right? Those of you that didn't know, the song's by a band called Nirvana. If you didn't know that, you're probably not listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. That'd be amazing if somebody didn't know this song. So in 1989, Nirvana released their debut album, Bleach, on local Seattle indie powerhouse sub-pop records. Oh, yeah which had become synonymous with the grunge movement via seminal releases from bands such as Mudhoney and Soundgarden. And Sub Pop is still an indie powerhouse and still putting out some of my favorite records. In fact, School, a song that's on the album Bleach, was actually a critique of the Seattle music scene and particularly Sub Pop. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't know that either. Nevertheless, Nirvana ended up putting out a single on Sub Pop called love buzz formed a relationship with the label and then sub pop asked them to record an ep and instead the band turned in a full-length album overachievers with, didn't realize yeah right they, i thought gen xers are all slackers all these grunge guys were <laughs> slackers right they're making a full album they didn't have to bleach comes out uh, and it's heavy and one-dimensional as hell pulling influences from sludge metal hardcore punk and left field influences such as the smithereens in short, it's not commercially accessible at all. Like, I love Bleach because I love Nirvana, but it is, there is no hit to be had. Like, it is just a heavy-as-hell punk record. Kurt Cobain actually said that there was pressure from Sub Pop and the grunge scene to play, quote, rock music. So he suppressed his arty and pop songwriting traits while he was making Bleach. Oh, wow. <laughs> the album initially, Bleach, initially made a whimper at radio and retail. It sold 40,000 copies in total, which at the time was not very many. And that was before Nevermind came out. It, it had totaled 40,000 copies. Oh, okay, okay. However, critically, it was a success. Enemy uh, said it was so primitive that they managed to make label mates Mud Honey sound like Genesis, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. This band's heavy as fuck. It'd be like, it'd be like hearing Fugazi and thinking, maybe they'll have a top 40 hit one day. <laughs> And if you don't know Fugazi, that's a, that's a fun ride, too. So here's, that's where Nirvana's at. 
I'm not going to do a ton of backstory there. Uh, they're a critically acclaimed, inaccessible for most people band with a little bit of a growing fan base and a moderately successful album. Not a lot to write home about. So they start working on some new songs for their follow-up album for Sub Pop that was tentatively titled Sheep. And they were working with producer Butch Vig in Madison, Wisconsin. He's famously the drummer for Garbage, who you and I have seen before together. true. And at this point, Smells Like Teen Spirit had not been written yet. Nirvana recorded some songs with Butch in Madison. And then Nirvana had to take a break from recording to go on tour. And in the middle of their tour, their drummer, Chad Channing, quit. Shortly thereafter, while they're on tour, they run into DC hardcore band Scream. And they're so impressed by their young drummer, a guy named Dave Grohl, that they exchange contact him. Shortly after that, Scream breaks up and Grohl hits up Nirvana and they say, you're in. Like, you're in the band. And Grohl's young at this time. He's younger than them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the rest is history. We don't need to beat the dead horse. That's a story I feel like we all know. There's no need for a where they're now in this pod either. Uh, definitely not. Not for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, maybe Chris Novoselic. He's like on some fucking farm somewhere doing something being a being a uh, libertarian or whatever um as all late punk rockers do yeah it seems like they do on a farm or libertarian i think he's doing both <laughs> rumor gets around while they're making this record that sub pop is going to sell to a major label and i think they ran into the same problem that sun records uh right behind me right there Ooh. uh that sun records ran into where they had all these successful albums because I mean, Sub Pop was putting out like Soundgarden records and they couldn't keep up with demand. So they were running out of money because they couldn't make product fast enough and they couldn't front the money for the product. So rumor was getting around that Sub Pop was going to sell to a major label. So Nirvana said, well, we don't want to get caught up in that bullshit and be lost at some (laughs) subsidiary. So we're going to take the songs that we already recorded with Butch, use them as a demo and send them to major labels. Assuming yeah. that like the deal will get done and these recordings do not have Dave Grohl. These are still with Chad Channing. Yeah. Uh, a few labels come to the table. I mean, and they not picked... the worst move. Good on them. No, no, absolutely. It's like, it's weird. It's like reverse selling out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they're going to make a sell out anyway. So we're just, just going to go get ahead of it. it. <laughs> but they picked DGC, which was a division of Geffen records. And that was based on a recommendation from their good friend, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. They'd had a good experience with them. And uh, similarly, like noisy punk band that was against the grain. Uh, Nirvana got signed. And that was without them even hearing Grohl's drumming on these songs. And to make the deal happen, Sub Pop got a few points. And for those not familiar, that just means they got a percentage of royalties from the record. Uh, those of you in the back of the class, <laughs> and they also got their logo on the back, so you could, I think, still if you buy it, never mind now, it's still a DGC logo and a Sub Pop logo. Yeah, I back. thought it was still Sub Pop, so that was that makes sense now. I mean, it's kind of like when Merge did that Arcade Fire record, sure. I think they just had like Warner Brothers Mer- in order to like let them do their thing with the major, they're like, all right, you know, just give us a little love and you're good, give us a little love and four points on a giant record, yeah, all good, we, we, we happy, yeah, exactly. Nirvana heads to Seattle to get back to work on songs on the album. And Kurt presents a song that he just wrote, Smells Like Teen Spirit, to his bandmates. And they fucking hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The band's bass player, Chris Novoselic, called it positively ridiculous. But Kurt actually intended that a little bit. 
He said he was trying for a riff similar to corny songs of the past, like Louie Louie, or something by 80s cheese rockers Boston. (laughs) So Kurt did what any ornery punk would do. He played the riff over and over again for 90 minutes. Love it. I thought you were going to say it was like a fuck you to the major labels. Like, we need a hit. So like, all right, we'll make a garbage song. Yeah, I I don't know if they'd started to even talk about the songs yet at this point i think they were just doing like pre-pre-production which is probably the set of songs they're going to present to the label so they can get in the studio get some money sure. eventually they slowed the song down and Grohl started playing a disco influence beat behind it which he said was inspired by the gap band one of the best disco bands in the game if you ask me and i know the gap band what definitely know some song? of their songs yeah they're yeah. fucking awesome kind of like the meters of of the disco world this if you listen to the song like you can totally see he's playing like slowed down disco beats essentially i never really thought about it before but because it's uh clouded by so much grunge and punk and everything else but that is what shaped the song into what we know and love slowing it down and putting these beats in and it's actually the only song on nevermind credited as written by all three members of the band interesting little fact would team effort from a song that they hated when they first heard <laughs> everyone's getting points the song actually turned out how kurt intended he wanted it to be like a pixie song he wanted it to be part pop song part roaring garage punk. and he actually intentionally That's a fun comparison yeah and he actually intentionally employed the pixie signature loud quiet loud dynamic so verse to chorus yeah. to verse it's it's you know up and down just like pixies yeah Interesting. Okay, cool. After this songwriting session, the band sets their sights on the now famous Sound City Studios in Los Angeles. I recommend everybody watches that documentary with Dave Grohl directed about the studio. It's great. Fantastic. Uh, to record the album with Butch. And before I get into the next part, I'm going to open this Sierra Nevada Hazy Little Thing IPA because I just finished my apple daiquiri Ooh. that I made. Getting those fall vibes. <laughs> So mm, it's a good sound. Mm, mm. Sierra Nevada is, I don't know, it just sounds better than other cans. I don't know what it is. It's probably because it echoes into the mic and then back into my headphones. <laughs> the band is heading to LA, to Sound City Studios, and to earn gas money to get there, they played a show in Washington. <laughs> that is where a pivotal moment occurred. It was the first of hundreds of times they would play Smells Like Teen Spirit live. Oh, wow. The title of the song derives from a phrase written on Cobain's wall by his friend Kathleen Hanna, famously the singer of Bikini Kill, and it read, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And she was referencing the teen spirit deodorant brand, which she had just seen at the grocery store. (laughs) Kurt didn't even know about the brand until long after the song had come out. He thought she was trying to write some sort of revolutionary slogan. (laughs) I didn't know that it was a deodorant either. Yeah, I think it's still on the market. Yeah. Teen Spirit. Oh, wow. Yeah. If I had ever seen it, I would have assumed that it came after the song. See, that would be brilliant. But hey, Gen Xers, smell like Teen Spirit. (laughs) The lyrics themselves have nothing to do with the title of the song and vice versa. And to this day, as we all know, music fans, pundits, journalists, historians still argue over what the song is actually about because Kurt never told anybody. The lyrics are largely made of opposing phrases and antonyms, which some have interpreted as describing a feeling of not knowing who you are or what you're supposed to be, which supports it even more as an anthem for lost or angry youth. And if you're feeling up for it, you can spend 
hours on the internet reading about the myriad theories of what this and many other Nirvana songs are about. Grohl asserts that many of the songs on Nevermind are more syllabic than symbolic, and they just fit and sounded cool and they were fun to sing. Hmm. Kurt even said in an interview on Much Music in Canada in 1993, I was just using pieces of poetry and just garbage, you know, stuff that just spewed out of my mouth at the time. <laughs> A lot of times when I write lyrics, it's just at the last second because I'm really lazy. And then I find myself having to come up with explanations for it. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter what he says. All the fans will still be like, well, he, they're just saying that. You know, he, he's, he's saying that to get around what it really means. So we need to figure it out. Oh, yeah. That was part of the mystique. He was also a genius and incredible poet. So him just spewing shit out is like Bukowski was laying in a gutter and was just like, you know, burping up words and it was amazing <laughs> like that's that's exactly the same thing yeah. i do like this interpretation however which is by the band's former manager danny goldberg who's still managing bands today and wrote a great book about nirvana and he said think about it with the lights out it's less dangerous here we are now entertain us it was rock and roll and kind of an ironic commentary on rock and roll at the same time that was the genius of the song. It combined a fierce commentary on shallowness while still having a mass appeal musicality. Yeah. I think that's why I always kind of maybe a little bit internalized it as a uh, fuck you to mainstream rock and mainstream labels and it being on its face, just, just punk. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like with that delivery, you could kind of say anything. <laughs> it would feel that way. True. True. But it's perfect in the context where we're discussing the song because he's saying it's kind of about shallowness and then end up being a huge hit in the studio the band's energy along with their explosive new drummer who convinced butch that this song could be a hit they're making the record it's happening at sound city and butch employed some fascinating methods to capture the moment and help smells like teen spirit and Nevermind become what he envisioned and he was a perfect choice for the job because he'd been playing in punk experimental and no wave bands prior to his tenure as producer I was going to say, he, at the time, hadn't produced uh, anything of, of huge note, right? Um, I mean, he, he'd done some stuff in the punk and garage scene. Okay. Not commercial hits. In fact, Geffen had told Nirvana that they need to work with a more high-profile producer. They actually looked into a lot of them, but they didn't like that a lot of those producers wanted points on the record or publishing. And they knew that Butch didn't right. want that, which is probably a good sign that they should work with him. But yeah, he'd done records by Killdozer, Spooner. Oh man, I actually don't know if he did Smashing Pumpkins Gish before. I think that was before. I think he'd already done that. So I guess he did have a record that was of note because that was oh, the first of theirs that was pretty popular. Oh, Urge Overkill, uh, Chicago band. Laughing Hyenas, like a lot of like touch and go, like no wave heavy, very like industrial distorted. But I feel like he was starting to get into doing more popular stuff uh and then after that he you know l7 sure. sonic youth and then obviously started uh started garbage and was playing in that band he did a bunch of depeche mode records uh and obviously now has done tons of very very popular records that we all know and love uh jimmy world and things like that butch is the perfect guy for this job uh because he played in all these bands and produced a lot of these bands he knew how to take that furious energy and harness it into something that would appeal to at least a few people outside of the freaks and geeks who like these types of bands. And he combined traditional studio techniques with some more experimental methods. Basically, 
the way I see it, where Nirvana wanted chaos, Butch helped them create controlled chaos. So I think they kind of needed him for that. Hmm. And he said when he first heard the demo of Smells Like Teen Spirit, he could hear the intro guitar riff very clearly. And as soon as Dave kicked in with that drum fill, it flattened the sound of the cassette and it just went to complete distortion because there, there just wasn't enough ceiling in their shitty recording for the song. <laughs> and he said, I could kind of hear the hello, hello part and I could kind of hear the chords and things. It was terrible sounding, but it gave me a sense of where they were going. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes a genius, I think, to pick all that out and say like, sure, we're going to, wow. we're going to do this with it. But he knew he had to put some limitations on the band or it was again going to be chaos. And, um, he knew that it wouldn't capture anybody outside of the circle of independent rock music or punk music. For instance, he knew that the band loved to use guitar feedback in their recordings and in their live show. I mean, it's all over Bleach and all over all the old videos of them. And I mean, famously, at the end of every song, they're up against their amps, creating feedback and starting to smash it. (laughs) And he said that for the iconic guitar solo in Smells Like Teen Spirit, instead of coming up with something punky or frantic or strangled like they usually did, they copied the exact vocal melody, which worked really well, but then to give it that edge at the end of the solo, he just lets it feed back. Uh, and they actually pulled it back a little bit in the final mix. Uh, and he actually thought that uh, they should have kept that in there. Oh, interesting. <laughs> he also suggested some changes to the arrangement, which resulted in a shorter chorus and some more guitar ad-libbing. The band recorded the track in pretty much three takes, but they used the second take, and Kurt only sang it three times. But as you can hear in the song, and you can actually find the isolated uh, vocal take online, it's amazing. I think I've heard it, yeah. he's, he's nearly strained his voice, and that's why they knew that that was the take. It just sounded so real and so powerful. Um, but despite all this wonderful and insightful production, Kurt's songwriting, singing, and guitar playing are what this song is built on. And he also had one of the best rhythm sections in rock music of all time. So it was yeah. a powerful combination. It was supposed to be the opening track on the album, and it actually turned out to be the opening track on the album. I'm still shocked that it is on that record. (laughs) Um, And it was also the first single. So, you know, back when you only heard one song before an album came out, they only released one single. This would have been the song that you heard and then blew all your allowance on the record. And you just cross your fingers. It was a good investment for your ears or convince yourself to love it because it's the only thing you can buy. I had a lot of those albums. (laughs) (laughs) The song was released to radio on August 27th, 1991. And it did not initially, the single only sold well in some regions of the U S where Nirvana had toured and gained a little fan base. Makes sense. It was supposed to be a grower. The, The label knew that. It was a song that was going to help build the band's base and help them potentially get onto modern rock radio one day. We're, we're on our way, baby steps. And even that seemed like it might be a stretch. Many rock radio stations were at first hesitant to play the song because the lyrics were difficult to understand. Oh, interesting. There are actually direct quotations you can find online from uh, some of the publicists who are working the record to radio uh, and promoters where they like verbatim DJs say, I can't play this because I don't know what he's saying. That's fair. Yeah. Folks at the label even thought it was the wrong song to go out with first. Some of them wanted Come As You Are to be the first single because they heard that song having more potential for radio. Which, if I was in their shoes, I probably would have felt the same way at the time. 
I totally get it. Smells did, in fact, start getting heavy play on college rock radio and even some modern rock stations. So it was starting to bubble a little bit. But then it entered the ring of MTV. Here we are again. This is how I feel like I know the song or how like I remember yeah. being. I mean, I was what, like five at the time, but I mm-hmm. distinctly remember the first time seeing the song on MTV. Do you have any more details about that first time? The acoustic version. Oh, re- oh it was unplugged. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. That makes that sense. That to me was my first introduction to Nirvana. And, th- and that could have been. Well, that was a year or two later. Yeah, so that you could were have a little been. Like I'm saying, that could have been me being a little yeah. older and looking at it from, from a rearview mirror, even. But that was my first time to be like, wow, yeah. this, is, this band is something different. Well, the music video, which featured the band performing at a pep rally that devolves into chaos. Oh, yeah. I forgot forgot about the video. Fuck yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, It first aired on the MTV show 120 Minutes, which was a late night show that focused on more underground music. A show that I forgot about that show. Jeez. Yep. Walk down memory lane here. So after that, after it aired on 120 Minutes, viewers were writing in and calling into MTV, asking about it so much. And then 120 Minutes ratings were getting so high with the song on that MTV started playing it during the day. That's right. Kurt Cobain screaming in your face every day. after. (laughs) (laughs) And MTV went as far as to prepare a version of the video that included the lyrics running across the bottom of the screen because they were so hard to understand, but they only played that version during the day at night. There were no subtitles. That's funny. (laughs) Pop up video before VH1 was even a thing. Yeah. After it's uh, getting all this airplay on MTV, few times a day modern rock radio starts to catch on even more and in turn mtv cranks up the rotation even more and it keeps going and going and going and i'm now picturing this vicious all those memes that are just like more 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 it's just like everybody's (laughs) just cranking smells like teen spirit more and more and it became the rarest of all rare it was a hit on nearly every format possible for rock guitar music modern rock hard rock album rock which would become triple a soon as we talked about in the last episode of crash test dummies college rock and mainstream rock radio now it's kurt cobain screaming right after bon jovi and aerosmith (laughs) and the only way from there was up and eventually it reached pop radio top 40 baby and in turn it took on the billboard hot 100 chart climbing all the way to number six the week of january 11th 1992 Sandwiched between two MC Hammer songs. Oh, so interesting. And then topped by Boys to Men, Mariah Carey, Color Me Bad, and Michael Jackson's Black or White at number yeah, one. Yeah, I would have guessed number one. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually somewhat, I was somewhat surprised that it didn't reach number one just because of how massive it was. But I learned in my research that many American top 40 stations refused to play the song in regular rotation and would only play it at night hmm. because it was scary i'm <laughs> sure yeah it was the punkest thing that's ever been played on pop radio like it was just and to be fair as a program director you're not gonna afraid. go from boys to men into nirvana it's just it's just not gonna work so but i'm sure the major label geffen and also their bosses were like you have to play this song oh, sure and they're like well this is my station i i can't play it after after paula abdul <laughs> it's gonna scare the shit out of people yeah but I would think that it would probably would have topped the charts if they had been a little bit more brave. But the album did reach number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart during a time in which it was selling over 300,000 copies a week 
week over week over week. That's wild. God damn. I mean, no one saw this coming. No one outlined this as a master plan. The expectation was to maybe end up on modern rock radio and have a hit bigger than what Sub Pop had been able to do. You know, it was like, well, Soundgarden's getting big. We guess we got to sign something that sounds like that. Um, Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into a little bit uh, what else was coming out at this time shortly. Um, But they were, you know, trying to follow a trend, but being really careful about it. I mean, the record only cost, I think, like 60K, which for a major label was pennies at that time. Nine months after playing the song live for the first time at the show where they were trying to generate enough gas money to get to L.A. to meet up with Butch, Nirvana was performing it on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Nine months later. Crazy. To sum up the song's rise on radio, I wanted to share what another critic at NPR Music, Stephen Thompson, had to share about his experience with the song on the radio. I just love this. He says, In the fall of 1991, I was volunteering as a college radio music director at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I started telling everyone I knew about this amazing song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. The station was tinier than tiny, literally 1.5 watts, a signal so weak you could hear it at one end of a dorm's floor, but not the other. (laughs) So I'd often be the only person calling in to any DJ's given show. Could you play Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana? I just wanted the DJ to hear it, to join me in evangelizing on the song's (laughs) behalf. It was so much better than Warrant and CNC Music Factory and all that other crap on pop radio. And we were so cool for playing it and telling our friends. And did you know they recorded it right here in Madison? When holiday break rolled around, I headed up north to visit family and found myself tooling around Appleton with friends. Whoever was driving had one of the local pop stations cranked when I heard the chunky little thung-a-dunk riff blare through the speakers. My mind was blown. For one thing, I'd never heard the song in a car before. For another, I had no idea Smells Like Teen Spirit had caught on to where they knew about it in Appleton and Green Bay, let alone played it on commercial radio alongside Cherry Pie and I Want to Sex You Up and the seminal early works of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. I love it. I love it. Which I Want to Sex You Up was just ahead of them on the charts whenever they're at number six. (laughs) Before you jump into the next part here, I have to join you in drinking a delicious canned snack from our wonderful sponsors. Ah, that sound. Mm. It's just... Heavenly, honestly. I'm telling you, something in the water in Chico. I want to talk about where rock music was at this time. I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions or maybe um, differing perspectives on where things were before and where things were after Nirvana arrived. It's, you know, it's folklore. At this yeah, I feel point. like I have a, uh, yeah, I feel like I have a uh, kind of, I don't know, like a, a vague recollection. I, I probably have, have, amalgamated many different bands at the time and who came before who came after well, i want to hear it oh i don't know if i could i could prophesize uh to me the, i guess to me i feel like nirvana was the catalyst for a lot of bands that i love but then also when i think about it i have to step back and say oh wait were the smashing pumpkins before was pearl jam before just slightly or were they just slightly after like that's where i get confused on kind of what was happening in that mm-hmm. scene, who's coming before who, who was playing with who. Because um, what was Pearl Jam before Pearl Jam was, uh, what was it? Mother Love Bone. Yeah. I mean, that was certainly probably before 
any of this, right? Which I think was sub pop as well. I always I just assumed. See, see, I'm just romanticizing the whole history. To me, every band was in sub pop. Every band yeah. was coming up. They were all right. hanging out yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was probably not as rosy as that, but I like to think it was. I'm going to mention Pearl Jam briefly in a minute. But of course, I wanted to talk about this because our friends at Stereo Gum ran an excellent piece about this last week for the 30th anniversary of Nevermind. Really about like the context of the song. I'm going to send it to you because it's an awesome article. And it's kind of the article that made me think about doing this episode. But uh, I'm going to read this excerpt from... I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from this article. It says, This was the day that college radio nurtured types and arty hard rock officially became rebranded as alternative rock. And according to legend, everything changed forever. Alternative rock had, of course, been around for a little while before it officially became alternative rock in 1991. The Cure, Depeche Mode, and R.E.M. were selling out arenas and lodging singles like Just Like Heaven, Enjoy the Silence, and The One I Love, all three songs that I'm like obsessed with, onto the pop charts, and college radio favorite Sinead O'Connor had conquered the world with Nothing Compares to You. But still... So that was pre, pre-91? Yep. Oh, Pre-Nevermind. Pre okay. But still... Something was inarguably happening by 1991. Faith No More had recruited an elastic-voiced weirdo named Mike Patton to sing for them and scored an unlikely hit with Epic, which I didn't even think about covering that song, and we should. It's a great song. That's another good one. It's another one that would be, like, toes the line of being... Right? Of course it's a hit, but also... Perry Farrell's Lollapalooza tour, initially envisioned as a farewell party for his band Jane's Addiction, had been a surprise hit bringing the likes of Nine Inch Nails, Butthole Surfers, and Susie and the Banshees to audiences across the country. So that's kind of the stage. Which is funny to think about, because I guess I would consider all those bands, uh, Jane's Addiction, The Cure, uh, Nine Inch Nails, to be alternative rock. But alternative mm-hmm. rock is definitely a, a blossom of the early 90s. So, Right. College rock might have a hit on modern rock. And then if you're The Cure, you might have a top 40 song. Like, it was just like... They floated in this ether. There wasn't really a place for them on the radio, yeah, on major radio. But I really like this bit, and it debunks a frequent myth we all hear about, and one that I've even repeated to people. Like one that I that I feel like if I've had a few beers at the bar and this song comes on, like I'll talk about it. And it might have even come up on this podcast before. But it says every generation has its defining myths, and the Nirvana and the alt rock boom killed hair metal and bubblegum pop is certainly one of Generation X's most enduring. As the great critic Chuck Eddy once opined, hair metal was dying well before Nirvana arrived. Glam poodles had wiped off their mascara and were trying to get serious. <laughs> Cinderella's 1990 Heartbreak Station was a purist blues rock record. Skid Row's Slave to the Grind out in June 1991 was a pop-shunning arena turbulence that went to number one without a hit single. The world-dominating pair of Metallica and Guns N' Roses, the Black Album and Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had just come out, probably deserves as much credit for making that genre look played out as any grunge act does. Also, eventually, all the trend-chasing corporate rockers like Nickelback or Creed that would have been hair metal groups in an earlier era rebranded themselves as fake grunge bands anyway. The more things change, as it were. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I feel like Nirvana and Guns N' Roses had beef was because they were like fighting to be the most important band. And they both kind of came at a time where 
those scenes were dying. Like they came at, they both yeah. showed up at the perfect time. I guess it's easy to look back on any kind of a cultural event, historic event and paint the picture with broad strokes. I mean, we do it in the podcast and we talk about, you know, the last episode or two episodes ago with cherry pop and daddy is it's, it's easy to paint the, the strokes of like, you know, hair metal was happening. The grunge came in. We wanted to get away from grunge. So that's where ska and the swing <laughs> renaissance came back. But there's so much else yeah. happening. There's so much nuance happening. There's so many bands bubbling up the charts that fizzle out immediately that we're not even, we don't even remember. We don't even yeah. know about, but we're probably for, for an instant, a flash in the pan. Yeah. And of course, whatever Nirvana had unearthed from the crypt at this moment was going to be watered down by corporations and turned into a parade of bands that we just joke about now. Like I, I think Moby was dead on in the uh, Woodstock 99 documentary where like, I think they showed like a Ken Burns photo of the Capitol building and in, in LA. And he was like, yeah, they were just chasing money. Like, like after Nirvana, it was just, <laughs> we're going to keep pushing corporate rock. We're going to keep pushing like all this shit. We had bands after this, like, uh, Alice in Chains and then Corn, and then, um, we'll get into Limp Biscuit and Rage Against the Machine, all that. Like those were heavy, but like they weren't top 10 on the pop chart. Th- those were not, that was not happening. Like after Nirvana, like pop, radio kind of went back to yeah. just what it was doing yeah. it was like some of the grunge stuff would break in some rock stuff would break in but there was nothing that sounded like this fucking song like there's no i don't know if there's a chorus in the history of top 40 radio that's as heavy as this song like it hasn't happened since and it didn't happen before i mean rage would be the only band that i would think that might get close but you're right i mean were they even think, close i don't think pop Probably stations would have played raid oh they were not only screaming, but rapping too. And it's fronted by a Mexican guy. Like, and they're talking about, uh, revolution and taking down like oil tanks yeah. and shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> like popular on MTV, popular on modern rockery. I don't know. I might be shooting myself in the foot because I didn't do the research just to back up all of this to see if they had been in the top 10, but I just don't think that happened. No, but even anecdotally though, I think what you're saying is that. There are very few bands, very few songs that I think my mom would know, your mom would know, my nephew, my 12-year-old nephew would maybe recognize as well, Mm -hmm. and everything in between. We'll get into that. Like, everyone knows the song, and and I think if you play the song, Mm -hmm. everyone knows the name of it, they know the band, they know a a very broad-stroke general history of of the time period or, or whatever. Because of the song. And there's no other song that is remotely mm-hmm. this hard that at all has that. So anecdotally, I see the point for sure. Whether you're you know, maybe Rage had a, a top 10, who knows? But yeah, I mean, this song is, is kind of one of a kind in that way. I, I think truly a bolt of lightning that will not strike again. Uh, I think it's it's truly remarkable. It's like a, it's almost like a Cinderella story. <laughs> The shoe yeah. just happened to fit at the time, and it was almost midnight. We had to get the fuck out of there and get this song out. <laughs> and the shoe was a Chuck Taylor. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, Cinderella and flannel and the pumpkin. <laughs> More of a gourd. I do want to highlight the albums that came out the exact same day as Nevermind. Ooh. It is... I, like, I cannot wrap my head around all of these albums coming out on the same day. I feel like August... Uh, during the 90s and probably still today I don't know but 
I uh, I don't know if it's a back to school thing or or what, but I feel like yeah, August. I think because like the changing of the seasons, the end of summer, there is blockbuster movies are are coming to an end. Yeah, I feel like yeah. August there was always just huge albums that were coming out. Yeah, Q. I mean, I think Q three still is the biggest month for putting. Out yeah, albums. I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's usually my busiest time of year. So on this day in 1991, Nirvana Nevermind comes out alongside. Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Ooh. Primal Scream, Screamadelica, Pixies, Trom Le Monde, and A Tribe Called Quest, Low End Theory. Wow. All came out on this wow. day. <laughs> and then I think like three or four weeks later, Pearl Jam 10 comes out. Damn. I mean, it's like right on the heels of this, which makes sense why they were lumped together. Because honestly, I know they're from Seattle, but like, if you listen to Pearl, if you listen to 10 and Nevermind, like they sound completely different. Yeah. They are very different animals. Uh, but I think that it was kind of, it was almost like a blur and oasis thing. They don't really sound that similar. They together. just come from the same place and kind of same genre, but different crowds and different schools of thought. And so people just like pitted them totally. against each other. And to be fair, I always gravitated more towards Pearl Jam than I did Nirvana. I think because it was a little more polished and that was just my taste at the time. A little more bluesy, classic yeah. rock sounding, uh very like yeah, Led Zeppelin influenced. Uh which Nirvana loved them too, but in a different way. But I think like, if you like, even compare you and I, like you know and love punk way more than I do. I love it. It's great. But like you have an encyclopedia of punk and I'm much more of your traditional mainstream modern rock. Yeah. So it made sense that I gravitated towards that side of things. But it is funny. There is this like weird, everyone gets lumped, they lump them together. Everyone loves both bands. But there is this little bit of weird, like, you know, uh, competition of sorts. I think my love of punk, a lot of it came from this album because I heard it on cassette over and over in the house from my parents. And dude, I was like four or five years old walking around the house going, Polly wants a cracker. <laughs> like I was singing like, all this stuff from this album uh, really, you know, shaped, I think, shaped a lot of my music taste. If it had been Pearl Jam all the time, I don't know. Maybe things. But would I think different. regardless I have no idea. of that, I think this band uh, and this song shaped everyone our age's view of music and, and feeling of music. Whether you're super into the band or not, it had an influence. It had an impact. And back to your mm-hmm. point, very random that this song made such an impact on our generation i think a lot of music generations it's, it's kind of like a goldilocks theory it's like everything had to line up exactly like scientifically for this song to happen at that time and explode the way it did and it changed everything forever um yeah so in the spirit of this episode being a bit of a departure from our typical episode, yeah in the teen spirit of our typical episodes <laughs> i'm not going to go over all the bands they influenced I'm not going to go over the cover versions of the samples and I'm not There's even going to play them. the weird owl parody ah. because those stories have been told. Is there a kid's pop version though? I don't know. Actually, I kind of feel like there might be, uh, there was definitely a lullaby version. Oh, I know there's a whole album. Yeah. There's not a kid's pop. Well, they say like libido. I guess they can't really say that dude. looks like there's a Muppets cover though, which is fucking awesome. Which I wouldn't say is Kids Corner because the Muppets are animal. actually mostly made for adults. But uh, I feel like I maybe knew about this. Is it Animal Drummond? He has, dude. I feel like Animal and Dave Grohl are like the same dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. It was in the Muppet movie 
uh, Jack Black's like tied up and they're all singing it as a barbershop quartet. Yes, yes, you're yeah. right. I forgot I about that. that now. That movie is great. And I feel like this story has been told too, but I've really, I really wanted to focus on, on it be only on it being unlikely. Like that's the one thing I want to talk about because I feel like it's gotten lost over a lot of time. I know everyone says right time, right place, but like it was more than that. Even beyond right time, right place, a bunch of things had to happen. It was a big domino effect that made this occur and it just never stopped. (laughs) It's like gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah, There's countless debates, discussions, musings about Nirvana, the song, this album, the time period of music. Um, The band hated the song at first. It's not really about anything in particular, as far as we know. It's extremely heavy and abrasive by standard of commercial radio. Their label thought it might only be a minor success. And though it kicked off the era of major labels throwing tons and tons of money at formerly independent rock bands and seeing what sticks because it worked this time. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. There's countless stories like that. Now, by the way, did that that happen before? Like They threw tons of money at hair metal bands. They threw tons of money at. Right. I mean, maybe not. I don't think a lot of those hair metal bands were on indie labels before that. It was like, sure, okay, I see the same. It was like we want to be on a major. That's what, like, I kind of feel like there weren't little indies doing hair I see metal. Okay. I guess New Wave. They were throwing money at New Wave bands, but I don't think like this because the '90s. I mean, this kicked off the time. I know we've beat a dead horse about this, but where there's so much money in the music industry, where they're just like, yeah. I don't know jawbreaker's cool let's give them a fuck ton of money and that didn't work out (laughs) like but it just that's what they were doing and i feel like this kind of kicked it off because it worked yeah i guess you're also talking about the uh the intersection of this and and maybe the cultural movement and and error here but also the intersection of cds and that that just being a, a yeah, just a huge moneymaker for... I mean, we're at CDs and cassettes right now. Two things that cost like 50 cents to make. Yeah. Blowing through them at Sam Goody at the mall. Um, yeah. But I, I feel like the song is so ingrained in our culture and tattooed on our brains. And we can see the music video. We can see Kurt. We could hear the riff. We can all recite most of the song. That we forget how special and at the same time completely fucking weird it was. <laughs> I can't even imagine something like this being popular on the radio today. Like those, those risks aren't being taken. And I mean, guitar music is barely on the radio to begin with. Right. I mean, you can look back, you know, read that top 10 again. It like Nirvana is such a black sheep in the mix of all those songs that are very similar and very cohesive together. And this just came out of nowhere. Absolutely. I think Nirvana might be the last, huge rock band that everyone could agree on and still agrees on Mm. like a singular band i love and revere them i always have but i even i can't put my finger on why they're so universally loved like universally i have very few conversations where people are like yeah fuck nirvana everyone's like nope nirvana rolls yeah grandma like everybody (laughs) agrees on this (laughs) it's definitely not polarizing because no one's saying fuck nirvana people can say like oh yeah i know that one song not a huge fan, whatever. Like, I don't know them. I don't, you know, or it's, I fucking love them. I don't even hear that. Yeah. I feel like it's people of all cultures, genders, sexual orientation, which probably also stems from the fact that Kurt was so vocal about progressive politics and inclusion that he printed in Incesticide, which is their B-Sides album, if you're homophobic, racist, 
misogynistic, don't buy our fucking records and don't fucking come to our shows. <laughs> so I <laughs> could also see how people gravitated toward a figure like that. Love it. And that's what we were saying before, like that we were kind of getting away from later in the nineties, like yeah. that idea that he was. And I think Eddie Vedder to a certain extent, were purporting of like caring about each other. It's all fun and rock and roll, but like, you know, we don't actually want people to get hurt. I alluded to this. Well, actually you, you mentioned your, uh, 12 year old nephew earlier. And what's incredible is that if you look around online, like you'll see that generations of younger kids keep discovering this song and this band over and over and over. Oh, fun. And it's still resonating with them as it always did. I'll, I'll put it this way, like case in point, the internet as we know it and use it didn't exist when this song came out. Yet in 2019, the Smells Like Teen Spirit music video crossed 1 billion views on the platform. Yeah. That's like a big deal when Justin Bieber hits it now. Like, yeah. And this is a song that came out 30 years ago. Tons of comments are people talking about, I just discovered this band. I've heard about Nirvana, but I, I, I've just found this. Or like, Kurt Cobain changed my life. And it's like definitely like a 13-year-old kid. And I think one of the reasons is that they came off as so genuine. They acted like they'd never been there before and that they shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And then they also didn't have time to sour anyone. We know that their career was shortened. I think that, I mean, well, people always say, like, what would have happened? Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy to, easy to, like, go to the worst case scenarios, but also, like, my God, what kind of music would have they made? You know, what, what could have Kurt done? They might have like, turned yeah. into Radiohead. Or they yeah. might have turned into, I'm not super into the newest Foo Fighters stuff. It's fine. It's, you know, it's rock music. But they might have gone yeah. that route. Or, to be totally honest, I'm... I think it's hard not to, you know, as a band that's been along, been around for so many years, like, it's hard not to kind of fall into your ways, which I think, mm -hmm. in some ways, the, the Radioheads and Food Fighters the Worlds have. I mean, I'm a huge fan of both. Uh, probably bigger. Or you just break up. Yeah. Your, your Pavement or Sonic Youth or, you know, R.E.M., and you just break up. And you're like, hey, I'm done, and now... Michael Stipe just like grows apples or whatever it See, is. See, like I said, like, they all become farmers at the end of the day. That's probably what would have happened. <laughs> right? They do. They, yeah. Like um, uh, Alex James from Blur is a cheese farmer, you know? Is he really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. They've, they've got gorillas and then cheese farmer. Um, <laughs> two disparate lives. I can't really sum any of this up eloquently because there's just so much. And as you can tell, I'm definitely very invested in it yeah. because. I love this band so much. I'm going to let someone who's better at writing about music than me do that. So we're going to go back to Stephen Thompson from NPR Music. And that same piece I referenced earlier, I think he said it best when he said, so, and I'm holding up my beer right now. So here's the Smells Like Teen Spirit, that unlikely song for everyone. As it crosses the billion views mark on YouTube, it's a thrill to think about all the teenagers not yet born who will one day get to hear it first. Damn. I love that. Cheers to that. So, we toast our Sierra Nevada brews. Mm. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Good luck getting that song out of your head. Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review. But only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at ywahpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. 
This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.